Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Graham, and this is the Elemental Collision Podcast. Happy 2020. I know it's been, you know, quite a few months. All my fault, I promise. Uh, We're getting there. We're getting there. Certainly getting things back in order here. And, well, like I said, welcome to 2020. Everybody's working from home. I'm working from home. It's a Saturday night, and I have a new blog post topic for you. Well, blog post podcast topic. So this question comes from the wonderful Elizabeth Gilligan from Material Evolution. So she wrote to me and said, Dave, are we getting to the point now where we have more data, which is creating more robust data sets to avoid implicit data biases? And if so, is it almost a moral duty to give away data to make sure algorithms are representative? Now, Elizabeth, Elizabeth is one of those kind individuals that just makes your brain work. And I have to say, Elizabeth, that is an awesome question. And data is all consuming to me right now. (laughs) It's the thing I deal with every single day in my day job. It's the thing I deal with every single day in my, well, not so day job. It's everything that we deal with as consumers as well, right? You know, decisions are made based on data constantly, right? And one of the things I'm working on on the side right now is this concept around data, how we acquire it, how we generate it, how we transform it, and then how we consume it. So the question is absolutely prescient, and I'd like to talk to it. So let's start with the first question. Are we getting to a point now where we have more data, which is creating more robust data sets to avoid implicit data biases? So the quick answer is yes, but. So the good news is, as we create data, we're compiling all this data together. This data, this data is, these datas, or datum, if you will, is being put together in various data lakes, right? Uh, you can eschew that terminology all you want to, but let's just, let's use the lake analogy for right now since it seems to work in my head. So all this data is being collected, you know, uh, it's unstructured or it's structured or it's blobs or it's metadata it's you know data about data right there's a lot of a lot of data just floating around it's as simple as sensor data it's as complex as structured databases um and everything in between right we're all consumers right we've deal we deal with the uh, let's call it the facebook phenomenon everything has a photo everything has data around it but all this data ends up leading to a collision right that collision not unlike the blog name elemental collision fundamentally causes things to, well, like I said, collide. It causes the responsibility of that data. So who owns it? Data governance, if you will. And that data provenance, right? What it is and what it can be used for. So we end up in this really weird space. We have these big data lakes. We want to go surf, you know, go surfing across the top of it. We want to pull out that data and we want to peer into it. The problem is there's no necessary cohesion between your data lake and mine, right? We could be in two different industries. Uh, Elizabeth is in um, architecture. I am in technology. Now, there is some overlap there, and I'd love to say that there's a lot of overlap there. Architects use technology. Technology informs the ability to do architecture. But let's just pause for a moment and say that what Elizabeth is concerned with, right, is fundamentally different to what I, Dave, am concerned with day to day. The way that we collect our data, the way that we view our data, the way that we look at our data then is going to be different. So my data lake is going to be bits and bytes and CPUs and substrates and and all that kind of fun stuff. Now, 
I just said substrate. So apologies, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is going to be dealing with substrates and aggregates and wonderful things. And, and as a side note, I'd urge you to go check out Material Evolution. They're doing some amazing stuff with concrete. That being said, when I look at data, when I look at all the things that I compile together, I'm dealing with people elements, I'm dealing with uh, machine elements, I'm dealing with all this stuff. So that data to me has a lot of different values. So as I collect that and as I look across you know, my day job, my company that I work for, I'm looking at a data set that is very robust within my industry, but is not robust insofar as Elizabeth industry is concerned. So there's almost like this self-governance thing that needs to happen here. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But as I go into use my data, if Elizabeth was to use, or if I was going to use my data, circle back around there. If I was going to use my data to make decisions in light of what Elizabeth is doing, then, well, that would have some implicit biases because I'm looking at things from my worldview. I don't understand her world. Right, but I'm using my data in order to make decisions in her world, what she should be doing. So right then and there, we have an implicit bias problem. Right, it's something where I'm trying to enforce my worldview upon her, and if she were to do the same thing back, architecture data informing the technical side, uh, we could argue the same thing was happening. There's an implicit bias there. She looks at her things in her own specific worldview. So do I. So when it comes to the original question. These robust data sets avoiding the implicit data biases. Um, yeah, it's it's helpful because then if I look within my industry, then I can say, hey, the robust data set that I have for my company, I can look at all that stuff, I can compile it all together, and I can use that to grid stuff out. But the checkpoint isn't always just the data. It's also me. It's also the people that are involved in that process, right? One of the issues that we have is that people are inherently biased, I said it out loud. I'll say it again. People are inherently biased. The decisions we make are inherently biased one way or another. You cannot approach a problem without bias, period. There is no way to remove 100% of the bias from a decision. That is philosophically, existentially, morally, whatever, problematic. You cannot do it. So we all come to the table with this this bias. The way that we kind of try to get around this is we look at governance. We look at um, AI decision governance boards, right? Hey, we're all going to look at this problem together, and we will come to a general consensus. But to a certain extent, we're still biased in the way that that board is created. Again, if it's, use the illustration of all white males making decisions on data for zoning, and we see this in representative government all the time, then no matter how much robust or how robust that data is, the decision making or the governance making is going to be biased. And when you look at committees, this is just a it's a slippery slope to an end. All this to say, as much as I'd love to say more data leads to less bias, more data, while great, doesn't always equate to less bias. Now, there are things you can do as part of that. You can make sure that you have a curation process. And by curation, I mean an absolute vetting process to, as to what that data is. Not all data is necessary. Not all data is required. Now, not all data needs to be saved. Not all da- data should be saved, right? So there's a lot of different questions that need to be answered as that data lake is being formed, as we're assimilating all this data together. And it needs to 
fall along that process. Processes need to be made. So as you start your company, you know, especially uh, I had the pr- absolute privilege of um, mentoring a couple of companies, you know, about 20 companies, I believe, uh, and a startup accelerator in Belfast. And Elizabeth's company was part of that. But as you start your company, as you start to deal with data, and I think every single one of the people that were there heard this from me, as you start to understand your data, as you start to look at your data, you have to understand what you're going to do with it, right? So the curation processes should be almost implied or implicit to anything you do with data. There should be no discussion about data without the discussion of how do I how do I look at this data? How do I evaluate it? How do I do it? So result, regardless of how big your data set is, a process needs to be put in place. Well, Dave, you say, what if I have all this extant data that I'm taking from other sources? How do I ensure the quality or, or capability of that? Aha, very good question. Is it necessary? We asked the first question. Is all that data necessary? What is the fundamental data I need in order to get my job done? or have my business function, or X, Y, and Z, right? It's what are those questions I need to ask up front? The second question after is, but that data necessary, is all that data valid, right? The beautiful part about research and the beautiful part about being in academia and pulling academic research out or scientific or tested data, laboratory data, or whatever, is that not all data is going to be useful. Not all data is going to be good. It's going to be data that's going to be reported, and you can use that to find the edges of what you need to do, but not all that data is going to be solid gold for you. Right? Some of that's junk data. And it's more of a caution sign. Don't go here. Don't do this. Right? You don't have to discard it per se, but you're not going to use that in your decision-making and in decision-making tree. You'll use it that in initially for that kind of branch and decision, but then you're not going to go back and revisit that because you already know that the data is, is invalid. Now, Peer review is a huge part of that, obviously. And again, we're spanning far afield here. Don't spend too much time on this. But peer review is part of that process of vetting and curating and uh, governance of that data itself, right? It's going and checking to make sure that the answers, the solutions, the the presuppositions that have been answered or supposedly answered, the hypotheses, if you will, are actually valid, that there's truth, there's rigor to it, right? So there we go. So a lot of data is great. A lot of data does not necessarily limit the amount of bias that's present in there because people are inherently involved. Now, we can extend this further into machines, and I will spend maybe a couple minutes on machines. One thing I love about machines is everybody seems to think they're the panacea for bias. They absolutely are not. Machines, remember, are created by people, right? The self-assembling or self-fulfilling prophecy of a machine that can think itself, replicate itself, and do that stuff. We are getting to the age of machine replication or AI replication or artificial intelligence replication, right? We have uh, artificial intelligence or machines that can learn, that can propagate, right? That understand as they continue to do this. I mean, we see this every single day in autonomous driving, right? Machines are trained. That training set leads to the ability to infer or the inference process, and decisions are able to be made based on these large amounts of data and training sets. But even in then, you're seeing machines having certain types of biases. We see this in the news with uh, you know Tesla. If you changed, <laughs> I forget what it was, if you put electrical tape over one particular segment of a letter or number, alphanumeric character, it can fool the machine. Because the machine is biased or the machine is trained to believe that that particular bit of information is representative of the whole, right? 
that you know is 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 an error in the processing complex, right? Could that be considered biased? Yeah, it could be because it's biased or it has an orientation towards that particular solution. Therefore, we can trick it by pretending it's something that it's not. That's us inserting something into the process. Ergo, bias emerges. So very, very long answer, 12 12 minutes to that question. But Elizabeth, awesome question, uh, notwithstanding. So the second part of that overall question is, and if these robust data sets help us avoid data by uh, implicit data biases, is it a moral duty to give away data to make sure algorithms are representative? That's an awesome question. Now, there are a couple different minds of this. Number one, there is the share everything kind of model, right? Uh, how do you uh, trademark or copyright or create intellectual property around maths? I mean, seriously. Addition, subtraction. Well, I'm going to go ahead and copyright that. <laughs> Most systems would say, can't do that. All right. So when you look at these algorithms or you look at the way that these machines or these curation processes, and let's call it a transformation process or curation processes are done, right? The underlying components of it, the process by which things are tra- are, are translated is, you know, and I, I, I'm not an expert on IP or copyright law here, so I may be speaking out of turn, but Follow, follow me for a little bit. The process by which data is transformed and, and done becomes a company secret sauce. The implicit, you know, code, or let's say the code of it is, let's go that way, but the algorithm may or may not be, right? So again, how do you patent or how do you protect the mass underneath it, right? And should you, right? So that's that's a huge looming question, right? Again, I'm not an IP lawyer, so I could not tell you one way or the other. In my personal opinion, maths are not patentable. They're not protectable. However, the application of those maths may end up being the crux of what becomes that patent or becomes that intellectual property, right? I mean, we have seen lawsuits after lawsuits after lawsuits about this. Uh, Waymo versus Uber, right? Um, you know, over the process and procedure by where, whereby which... Uh, autonomous driving is done. You know, the visual recognition systems, LIDAR, so on and so forth. So there is case law, and I'm assuming this is as pertinent in the European Union, EMEA, APJ, as it is in North America, South America, and Central America, right? That this is something that's to be litigated. We see software patents all the time, you know, uh, Oracle versus Google is a current extant one right out there right now. Um, and that's a lot of that has to do with process and has to do with the underpinnings. So the underpinnings of that mass, if you will, sorry, my screen just shut off. Um, the underpinnings of that become very, very intriguing. Now, how can you audit something or how can you participate in something if you don't know what the underlying code is doing, right? So this is where the concept, I think, of peer review or governance becomes very, very important. Now, companies that have their secret sauce, say I wrote an algorithm and I then included that algorithm in a product and I protected my product, right? I am taking raw audio. I'm looking at Audacity right now. I'm taking raw audio. I am processing it and I am outputting to an MP3 or a WAV file. So that translation process, you know, which uh, in this case I believe Fraunhofer is doing, which is awesome. You know, that process is patentable. It's you know they've released their their code. We can pull that apart. In my opinion, you can pull some of that part and you can look at the mechanics and you can understand how that integrates into the whole. Right? 
Companies need to set up governance boards, in my opinion. Again, speaking only for me. Companies need to set up governance boards in order to understand what their company is developing and how. Right? We have patent review boards all the time um, at my day job, which is awesome. Uh, we review things as they go to patent. We have review boards to understand what it is, and we ask hard questions. And that's all so that we actually understand what we're putting out there. Because if I'm going to go patent something as silly as a napkin with a ketchup stain on it, um, somebody should have caught that prior to you know some of these insidious patents that are just stupid. Uh, and we see them all the time. People need to catch that stuff. So answering Elizabeth's question is, you know, should all these things be sh- shared? I think there is a, um, a need to have open and honest, you know, sharing of these type of things, right? Um, you know, how that gets done becomes debatable. And I think there's a need to have an overall governance board, you know, whether it starts by company by company or it starts at, you know, I would dare say I would probably try to avoid the federal uh, complex, right, as much as possible because the last thing you want is another patent trade organization that takes aeons to, or eons, as it were, to make decisions and then ultimately throws everything into court of law, you know, litigation, right? And that's where a lot of these things ultimately get sussed out is in litigation. It ties up time, resources, efforts, and energy. That actually, in my opinion, holds back most of society. Um, and there's no really good reason for it. So, I think there's a there's a a reason to or a means to um, create these type of things. Whether you call them a data governance board or something along that lines. Now we're seeing the emergence of the chief data officers. We're seeing the emergence of chief privacy officers. Right, a lot of this has to do with data governance. Has to do with what's happening because it's really the data that's causing the problem. The algorithm is part of that data pipeline, so ergo it should be reviewed as part of this. But you know that data ends up being kind of the crux of things. So um, long story short, long answer short, I'm almost at 20 minutes, which is insane. Yes, I do believe that there should be shared um, shared resources. There should be shared processes and procedures and how things go. I would say I kind of veer away from the overall capitalist idea of, you know, everything I do is mine and I'm going to make money off of it to all others be damned. Now, I say that and I get paid by a company that makes technology products and goes through this process every single day. So I want to be very, very cautious, conscientious, I should say, and careful of that. And I obviously do not speak on behalf of my employer. Um, I think this may end up being an industry by industry problem, right? So architecture, you know, the a global certifying board ends up providing, you know, input into that. Uh, I would see easily within the technology space that there is a global process that gets influenced there. One of the things, uh, as a side note, talking about data governments and talking about even artificial governance is that the World Economic Forum actually has working groups that work on prescriptive guidelines for artificial intelligence, for example. So you know, And so they have these different working groups that are focused on these questions and these problems. And it's a beautiful thing to see it worked at from the global level. A lot of this also requires on the implementation at the nation level, state level, county level, however you want to look at it. And there's a lot of sovereignty issues. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that. But what I want to say is there is at least an effort that's being made in order to achieve an end that Elizabeth is asking about where we have share and share like we have the ability to vet and understand and look at implicit biases within our algorithms, within our data sets, within how we do stuff and call people, companies, places, procedures to account 
What is stuff that they do? And truth be told, it's an amazing, amazing idea. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for your questions this week. It has given me enough, let's say, brain energy in order to talk for 20 minutes, believe it or not, about implicit bias and data sets. So uh, that's all for this week. I'm going to push this thing out. You should hear this Monday, but all things being equal. Thank you, Elizabeth from Material Evolution for your questions. Go check her out, Material Evolution. And... Check me out on Twitter at Dave Graham. Check out my website, elementalcollision.com. And this is up on SoundCloud. And folks, I am honored by any questions, comments, concerns, anything you send my way. So want to make it all worth your while. Send your questions, send your comments, and we'll get them answered on this podcast. Hopefully with some level of frequency and regularity. All righty. Have everyone have a great weekend. Have a great week and stay safe. Don't shake hands.